Hello! Welcome to Series 2, Episode 3, entitled Folklore, Open Bracket, Why Bother, Question Mark, Close Bracket. Why bother? As ever, there are a lot of problems in the world right now. Why would we spend our precious energy today musing over folk traditions at length? Some nonsense tale that's been passed down that, I mean, on closer inspection, doesn't make a massive amount of sense. Or the studying of bizarre rituals, costumes, folk dance. Surely, I mean, it's all very nice, but there's not really that much relevance to the complexities we face today, right? Folklore is rural, regressive, museum pieces from a bygone age that have little connection to our busy modern lives. I'm going to attempt to prove this lack of relevance to modernity opening statement false, and I would love it if you could come on this journey with the show. Yes, you. Yeah, you. When I was initially thinking about this question, I, God bless me, mistakenly thought I could cover this in one episode. So I began writing to quickly realise this definitely wasn't the case, or rather, not if it's to have the impact that I'd like. So, Folklore Why Bother is the name of a series of which you are lucky enough to be here for the first episode. These won't be back-to-back, but rather studded throughout the seasons, giving the surrounding episodes context and accentuation. I've got a first issue a warning, however, we are going to get into some strange realms in this series, um, the reason for which might not always be immediately evident, but I want you to know there is a method to the madness, and of course I would never lead you down the garden path. Actually, do you know what, I think I will lead you down the garden path. Come with me. Watch your ankles. Yes, yeah, sorry, I do need to get rid of those nettles. Oh, that's Pluto. You're not allergic, are you? Yeah, if you just open the gate, um, the latch is a bit tricky. Yeah, if you just keep going up here through the trees. Yeah, yeah, you can just um, hear the river now. So we've come to the banks of a river that flows past the back of the houses. The water's moving fast, with rocks piercing the surface in several places, creating ripples and texture. We sit down on the bank, just where there is a sharp bend in the river. It is the 1st of May, Beltane. It's pretty quiet, save for the birdsong. So, what is folklore? I like Lynn McNeil's definition, informally transmitted, traditional culture. Folklore isn't the official word. It hasn't been handed to you by the government, by institutions, by the cathedral. It is the words of so-called ordinary men and women, such as ourselves. Why care about such? You may already feel sparks crackling between your ears in response to this question. Amongst the many sparks that occurred to me, one asked to be first. Thus, this opening episode is entitled, simply, The Land. I took us to this spot by the river here, uh, next to the bend, as, to me, it feels like a borderland of types. 
Um, that direction is town. You might um, be able to hear in the distance the old car horn or siren. And in that direction, there are fields, farmland, um, there's some really nice walks. And this kind of lovely wooded valley we're currently in, with the river running through, runs just underneath. In my mind, I've always thought of this bend as a type of marker or an intersection between these three different types of spaces and this borderland type spot. I just felt like an apt point to begin this series. Also, sorry for slightly abducting you. You good for 15, 20 minutes or so? The land. What do we mean? Fistfuls of dirt from a flower pot? Some kind of middle-class Guardian article on untouched Cotswolds beauty spots? As is always good advice, start with what you know. So, as we lie back on this riverbank, I'd like you to close your eyes and picture the current building you call home. Whether this is your own pad, uh, a flat share, your parents' house, whatever, let it appear now in your mind's eye. Think firstly about its structure. What type of building is it? When approximately do you think it was built? What was it built for? You might think, to live in, duh. But that's not always the case. Many spaces have been converted. Think about all the old mills that are now home to chic apartments, ditto factories and grand houses split into floors. What about old pubs, stables, barns, schools? Think about the space itself. How high are the ceilings? If you're in an older house, you might see the original sash window frames, or perhaps there's a fireplace or where one once stood. Now consider those who were here before you. Think of those who knew this space too, and where it was likely the backdrop to, no doubt, many momentous occasions. Feel other lives coming into view. Perhaps if this is a new place, it's only known a few people before you, or perhaps it has known many. A multitude of lives as rich as our own that we will mostly never know about. If it is very new, see the land before it was built on. Feel these shifting slides, pieces of tracing paper with new scenes overlaid now onto your street. Now, for the next part, imagine your mind's eye starting to zoom outwards. See the land this building is situated on or in. Think of your pad's relationship to it. How has the landscape likely shaped the lives of nearby inhabitants? The busy road your house may be on the side of that for a long time has been an essential route for trade. 
Maybe you live by the water and could consider the presence that river or coastline has had on people's lives and the type of labour they would have likely engaged in for their living. They might have been shipwrights or dealt with the large amounts of trade that came along the water. A body of water might be one of the easiest ones to begin thinking about, as most settlements were of course built around a source of it. Or perhaps you're lucky enough to live in a quiet hamlet where farm work would have, or still does, shape the lives of the people here. Perhaps you live in a modern flat in an ancient city where the neon lights still don't shine bright enough to keep the ghosts of the past completely at bay. See roads connecting to others, fields becoming a patchwork. If you live near the coast, the edge of the land coming into focus. See your building in the context of all this, not a lonely four walls anymore, but as part of a far wider landscape, a larger plan. Dots are beginning to connect, silvery lines linking your building to the world around it. The street too, is waking up. Colours are enriched, more vibrant than you've ever seen them before. The ground itself starts to buzz slightly, an electricity you feel creeping up your bones. You see that human culture leaves these lines, lines between buildings which lead to the ground, to the sea, interlacing endlessly like silver bootlaces. They, too, run directly through the earth. Out of curiosity, you bend down to touch one line that runs past your door and find it is hot, it buzzing with energy, with passion. In your mind, you stand outside your door, observing the intricate patterns of these lines back and forth. The land around us shapes human culture, and human culture shapes the land. In the past few minutes, we've done an awful lot of work. We've just casually slipped back through time. We've also felt the landscape around us coming more firmly into view, to our connection, past and present, to it. If there was more here than you could absorb all at once, do feel free to return to this section as many times as you need. It seems to me we're encouraged to consider the human story in designated places. In the museum, we stand thoughtfully at cabinet cases, our minds stimulated by the treasures before us. Or in historic buildings, stately homes, where we're informed certain events took place, and we gaze up at the rafters of grand halls, trying to make that connection. On our drive to places of mundane significance for us, for example, the dentist to the football stadium, the school to the supermarket, the land in between isn't worthy of much regard. Places which are not stamped as culturally significant. The estate leads to the roundabout, leads to the motorway. On foot, on the edges of town, we might move through types of wasteland, scrub, fenland, 
disused building sites. None of these places, today at least, are where things of note are designated as happening. There's nothing much here. Or maybe that's not true. As you stand back outside your door, you hear a kind of murmur, subdued, but it sounds like distant voices. You spin around, trying to pinpoint the location to no avail. You then realize the sound is coming up from the ground. Many, many voices, many separate conversations. You then lean your ear to your front door and realize it's also coming from the walls. A great chorus, the eerie sound of many lives. If only these walls could talk, goes the saying. There are many mouths speaking now. Near where you stand, many extraordinary things have happened. Yeah, yeah, I know. Those ordinary men and women we talked about earlier have experienced remarkable events. Passionate love affairs to rival history's best known. Two, things too terrible to put into words. The highest of all joys, the lowest of all lows, the vast majority of which we'll never know about. You are surrounded by some of the best stories conceivable. And even just thinking of the everyday, pacts have been made in the old pub you frequent, deals that have changed lives forever. Women have given birth in rooms around you, and people, too, have taken their exit from life here. If you live somewhere very rural, and you're struggling to imagine much ever happening here at all, think of the shifting of the land. Evidently, it hasn't always looked like this. Much of these islands were covered from the end of the last ice age in increasingly dense forests of oak, hazel and birch. What would it have been like to move through this space then? When early islanders began farming, the tree cover slowly began to give way to pasture and cultivated land that we see being ever streamlined today. Consider this shifting landscape, always in motion. Two of the bones you walk upon. These islands have seen much migration and many invasions. The Bellbeakers, the Celts, Romans, Anglo-Saxons, Vikings, Normans, beneath our feet is a graveyard. There are certain times, such as when you see the first ray break the horizon at dawn, that perhaps you can hear the bones rattling. I'm now going to ask something pretty odd of you. I would like to invite you to fall in love with the land I do realise this sounds like something an acid casualty might say, having sidled up to you at a festival at 2am, but unfortunately, I am serious. It might be helpful, however, to start with this word, love. What do we mean, love the land? I was listening to Neil Oliver's mighty Love Letter to the British Isles podcast, and something he said particularly struck me. It was an episode on the impact the war had on small communities in the highlands of Scotland, namely Portree on the Isle of Skye. 
Neil spoke about the very young men who'd left their parents' houses one morning not to have come home, and what this might have meant for this small westerly community. He spent time mentioning the addresses of these abodes with their ghostly sons. I've spent a fair bit of time in poetry, and I recognise the streets he spoke of. As he kept talking, I pictured them, no longer full of Airbnb guests, but instead, on the morning the parents were told their children weren't coming back, I saw the houses perched above the water, the silence of the rooms against the unforgiving weather of the inner Hebrides. Neil then essentially asked, why would a podcast calling itself a love letter dwell on such shadows as the horrors of war? If we're up in the highlands, wouldn't it be far more appropriate to highlight the breathtaking scenery? That would be so much more apt, right? I'm paraphrasing, but Neil made the point that when we love a person, as an example, really love them, it isn't just the highlights reel. The highlights reel is the realm of idealisation, infatuation, pristine images that can do no wrong. And that's not love. When we really love, the shadows that partly make us all are just part of the deal. Taking this more considered approach, and with the work we've done so far thinking about where we live, I would like to invite you to... Yes, as uh, odd as it might sound, fall head over heels in love with the landscape around you, soaked both in blood and also the highest joys this human life has to offer. It's no small feat, granted, but I'm finding myself in an ambitious mood. When we say love, this isn't the hallmark version. It isn't sugary, superficial, plastic... It's not a mass-produced, depersonalised sentiment. It's your own slow and meaningful connection to the world around you. And nobody can dictate to you the surprising forms this can take. If you live in an aesthetically challenged s-hole, as I have certainly done in the past, granted this could seem like an insurmountable challenge. I've got you. A starting point, I've found, is to walk into town and to look at the top of buildings, not the um, the current storefronts below, but look at the original architecture. You'll often find the buildings quite grand and with a certain amount of beauty. Clearly, there was some kind of a vision here beyond just the building's utility. The architects are not dead but live on in their creations. Two, get out of the town and notice the land around it that feeds into the residential streets. Perhaps there are lots of peaks, valleys, or fenland, moors, canals. Again, like we did earlier, see your own pad in the context of all this. If I've done this in some of the worst parts of Salford, I assure you, it is possible. It's now time to return to our riverbank in the borderlands. Welcome back. So the exercise we just did was cool and stuff, but what does it have to do with folklore? 
I want you to know the land around you is replete with stories. This is perhaps easy to connect with when we visit sites of legendary significance. For example, the landscape around Linda Van Vaar, as we looked at in our Lake Lady episodes. When standing at the edges of the lake here, it's natural for our minds to begin happily slipping. Considering the legend connected to this body of water is a pleasurable activity, we drink in the dramatic mountainscape and this watery jewel at the bottom. For a moment, the edges of things begin to feel a little hazy. We find, for all our sophistication, that something in the back of our minds is stimulated. As we looked at in the third part of that Lake Lady series, Series 1, Episode 6, for your reference, we found that, actually, multiple lakes in Wales have Lake Lady stories attached to them, and some are in much less dramatic or aesthetically inspiring locations. For some of them, I really struggle to find much modern information on them at all. Many of these tales are in the process of being forgotten. As we more and more turn to the online world rather than the one outside our windows, Hello Metaverse, this is, without judgement, likely to accelerate. Two, as more locations of significance have roads built through them or housing estates on top of them. I know, for example, this is a serious issue in Ireland, where 44% of Ireland's once sacred fairy forts have disappeared or sadly been destroyed. If this is a topic of interest to you, please see The Men Who Eat Ring Forts, which I have linked in the show notes. If you don't even know the significance of sites because the stories about them have been lost, how do you guard them in the first place? You don't. And there is no public outcry when another fort is levelled, another door closed. You might think this is the job for other people, assigned institutions, but if 44% of Ireland's sacred forts have been destroyed, clearly there's a problem. Stories matter, they're intricately linked to the landscape and make walking this earth a pleasure, as through them we learn, discover, feel connected to where we are. I deliberately picked your home, wherever you currently live, as a starting point for said exercise, as opposed, for example, to picking a universally celebrated beauty or cultural spot. I did this because this is a muscle you can start using now. You don't need to live in a landscape that resembles a constable painting. Many of us live in urban or semi-urban environments, and we may associate connecting with the land, in inverted commas, to be something for those other people, wherever they are, Wiltshire or something. Or something you might hear in one of the crystal shops in Glastonbury over the mass-produced dragon statues. For others, it might seem like a task that belongs to yesterday, a nice idea, but one of the past, really, when all is said and done. It's important to me that when I say the land, what's conjured in your mind isn't the image of a field being ploughed a hundred years ago, without wanting to state the obvious. The land is all around us, always, wherever you sit or stand now, 
the environment you engage with every day. How can any of it be separate? I understand it may not always feel like it, but I assure you there is, wherever you are, a great deal around you worth discovering and preserving. Get off the beaten track and find those gems in whatever form that lie waiting for you. We will return to this river borderland for future episodes in the series. If you'd not like to continue the exploration, no worries. If you just head back down the path, through the garden gate, past Pluto, and we'll have a coffee and call you a taxi. If you are up for hunting down these gems, these treasures, you stay here and let's head... Hmm, what do you think? Let's head in that direction. Thanks for listening to today's show. Stay tuned as we head over to Folkways FM for May 2022's Almanac. If you'd like to take this relationship to the next level, you can now join the Friends of Folkways. Friends are treasured listeners who enjoy instrumental soundtracks, giveaways, hidden posts, and coming soon, meditations. May the gods of the soil, sky, and links of your ancestral line bless you. The warmest of welcomes to May 2022's Almanac and a very happy May Day or Beltane to ya. Summer is a coming in. To open up the show, here's some 19th century Welsh verse for you by Thomas Talnyog Evans, translated into English by Kenneth Jackson in 1951. All the sweetness of nature was buried in Black Winter's grave, and the wind sings a sad lament with its cold, plaintive cry. But oh, the teeming summer will come, bringing life in its arms, and will strew rosy flowers on the face of hill and dale. In harmony, the wood has put on its green mantle, and summer is on its throne, playing its string music. The willow, whose harp hung silent when it was withered in winter, now gives forth its melody. Hush, listen, the world is alive. May, named for the Roman goddess Maia, who oversaw the growth of plants. In Irish, it's Bealtaine. In Welsh, my, Scots Gaelic, it's Incaechan. In Cornish, Miss May. The old English Anglo-Saxon name is Thumilkmanath, literally the month of three milking. Summertime is here, and the cattle produce more milk and need to be milked more often. The venerable Bede says this happened but three times a day. Today, the first of the merry month of May is Beltane, Bultana, Sasawan, or May Day. On May the 1st, there are many rituals involving outdoor frivolity, from bathing in the morning dew, to gathering greenery and may blossom to make garlands to adorn homes, barns, carts, animals, and the famous maypole. We're bringing in the may. 
the festivity officially begins at moonrise on May Day Eve, and essentially, we're looking at an early pastoral celebration accompanying the first turning of the herds out to wild pasture. An early reference to the festival is found in the Sanas Kormech, somewhere near the year 900, which is an early medieval Irish glossary. Under the entry Beltane, both surviving texts have the entry Lucky Fire, likely in reference to the two fires which druids used to make whilst saying great incantations over the wood. In the margin of one of the texts is the additional, very helpful jotting that, quote, they used to drive the cattle between them, unquote, as Professor Ronald Hutton has noted. It would seem this was performed as a type of purification to ward against the disease in the coming year. Somewhat amazingly, this ritual survived in Ireland until the 19th century, where in southern Leinster in 1838, the farmer Humphrey O'Sullivan just casually noted in his diary how he had driven his cattle between two fires on Beltane, precisely as was recorded in Sanas Cormac, almost a thousand years before. The flames of the Beltane fires were said to be lucky to humans too, and we see ritual leaping over the flames, much as we also see at Midsummer. The Fey folk were said to be extremely active on May Day Eve or Valpurgis Night too. One had to look out for fairy raids and the wild hunt. Ghosts and other spirits were also believed to travel freely on this night. Some practices were aimed at attracting these visitors, most at driving them away, however, which is a point that seems to have been somewhat lost in the fluffy realms of the New Age. Indeed, to quote Eddie Lenahan, if you were out on May Eve, you were considered out of your mind, so dangerous was travelling on this night viewed as being. If you're listening to this though, you made it through the evening. It's hard to believe, but next month is going to be summer's zenith, the summer solstice. The greening of the world is fast upon us now, no longer in the first throes of spring, boughs are covered in everyday, richer shades of green. Take time to enjoy this acceleration before the inevitable downward slope begins. There's still more light, more heat to look forward to. It's the time now for making summer plans. Talking of more light, if you woke up in Galway on the 1st of May, you saw the sun rising at 2 minutes past 6 and setting at 5 minutes past 9. Booyah! We've picked up no less than around 2 extra hours a day since the beginning of last month. If you woke up in Glasgow, the sun rose at half 5 on the 1st of May and set at 5 to 9. And Guildford, the sun rose 5.35 and set at 8.25. The new moon was 30th of April. The next full moon is Monday the 16th of May. However, there will be a total eclipse of the moon, so do make a note of that for the 16th. The Anglo-Saxon name for May's full moon was the milk moon, 
I'm assuming this has something to do with the three milk manath name for the fifth month, the um, three milking bonanza we looked at earlier. Other names for May's moon from these isles include Mother's Moon, Bright Moon, Hair Moon, and the Grass Moon. The constellation of Cassiopeia is now low over the northern horizon to the east of the meridian. High above, Ursa Major has started to swing around to the west, and the stars that form the extended portion of the legs and paws of the bear are becoming easier to see. The whole of the constellations of Cepheus, Draco, Lyra and Ursa Minor are also easy to see right now. So I hope you enjoy this so-called merry month where the world is still ripening around you. I would like to set you an assignment if you're up for it. Hunt down the 1953 short film by Alan Lomax, Os Os We Os, which documents the May Day festivities at Padstow in Cornwall. It is a gem of a find, beautifully shot with the keenest of eyes. You may well know the film, but uh, this time of year is the perfect opportunity to enjoy again. You'll find it saved in a playlist on Folkway's YouTube channel. I rewatched it a few days ago before going on an early morning stroll and it put me in an unashamedly glorious mood. Till next time. Chippers, get the butter out.